Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Strippin' the Dippin'. And if you were expecting to hear a beautiful, sultry Caribbean voice like AMG Dens, well, you're not going to get that one today because I am Dr. Obbs, and I am your resident tech doctor back for another episode with a very, very special guest today. I have to say, I'm a little nervous. This is my first team principal that I will be speaking with, but today we are joined by former Williams CEO of CEO of Williams Racing and team principal, Jost Capito. How are you, Jost? Yeah, hi, Dr. Dobbs. I'm fine. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me to be in your, in your podcast. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking with you about what I've done in the past. And I hope it's interesting for the listeners. Absolutely, Jost. I have to say, as I was preparing for this podcast today, I was looking through your motorsport lineage, your history, and it's probably one of the most extensive ones that I've seen. So there is definitely a lot to talk about today. And I think the listeners are going to be very interested to hear those stories and also hear what you've been up to. So let's jump right into it. Yeah, let's go. All right. So I guess the first question, Jos, for you, before we really get into, you know, your engineering degree and all the places that you've worked is what first started the motorsports passion for you? How did you first catch the bug? Because everybody I speak with that is really passionate about motorsports can point to one time where they say, yep, that's where I caught the bug. Where did it start for you? Um, that's an interesting question because I believe it started before I was born and that, that sounds quite stupid, <laughs> but uh, when my mother was pregnant with me, my parents went to the tourist trophy on the Isle of Man <laughs> and I must have heard the, the noises of the motorbikes racing, even have not seen it, but it must have put the virus into me before I was born. So... <laughs> <clears throat> so uh, it must be like this, uh, because I can't remember a time when I was not really into racing. My father uh, founded with two friends the local motorbike motorsports club, um, and uh, he supported the local riders. And um, I remember since I was the age of three, I was going to races with him and supporting the drivers and helping out. So it's all my life, really. Wow, that's that's a fantastic story. And I completely believe in this because even myself, when I when my mother was pregnant with me, I sat through her dissertation for her Ph.D. when as an industrial engineer and I ended up being an engineer as well. So I. (laughs) I believe in this. I think it's completely true. So along that engineering path. You found yourself at the Technische Universität München, at the Technical University of Munich, where you received your mechanical engineering degree. So what kind of pushed you towards mechanical engineering as opposed to some of the other disciplines? You know, I was in racing, I said racing since my early childhood, and I started racing uh, at the age of 16. I had my first race on the 16th birthday. It was a Sunday and I got my driving license in the morning at three o'clock at the police station and I started the first race at eight. <laughs> <coughs> so, um, and then it was an, a motorbike enduro race. So I raced enduro and motocross. Um, and uh, before, I, before I got into university, 
I was driving for Sunda, the German motorbike company that was very active in enduro at that time. I think the company has been sold later to China and I think they produce still uh, motorbikes under the name of Sundup in China. And uh, because uh, Sundup was in Munich, that was one reason to go to Munich as I raced for them to be close to the factory, close to the mechanics and uh, help to develop the bikes. And also I was always a big fan of, of Paul Roscher who was the head of engine um, motorsport, BMW motorsport engine development. And he was in charge of the Formula One engines, the former Formula Two engines. And uh, I, I wanted to work for him. I said this, as BMW is in Munich, um, I said, I have to go to Munich. And also the, the technical university in Munich was, I think it's still, but at that time, definitely it was one of the best technical universities in the world. And um, and I wanted to to go there, and I I was lucky and happy that I could achieve that and starting studying in Munich. And that's a that's a great segue <laughs> into the next thing I wanted to ask you about was that I had read somewhere that you you started maybe when you were in your undergrad working uh, for BMW as you said, and you were working in the powertrains division on the M3 and the M5s. Is that correct? Yeah, I, uh, then I, I pushed hard and tried hard to get my diploma work at BMW Motorsport. Um, as I thought, okay, if I do a good job there, I have a chance that they employ me and my dream to work for, to work for Paul Roche comes true. And if not, at least I have done the diploma work there and the, the M engines were say the, the best engines at that time globally and I say if I have worked on these engines in my diploma work I have a good chance to get the job somewhere else as well <clears throat> so and then I start I got the diploma work at BMW uh, Motorsport and it was on the um, on the gas exchange of the four-cylinder four-valve engine that was the prototypes for the first M3 engines and I really enjoyed that. And that was, was great work. I got straight into the department, could work with everybody there. And uh, yeah, was was a great step into BMW. That's great. And so would you say that your your biggest area of interest when it comes to motorsports or, or race cars is the powertrains, is the engine side of things? Yeah, and initially it was, but then... Um, so then I had to get into everything else and I got more interested in the motorsport management and what motorsport is and what, what makes motorsport. And uh, that came largely through my experience with uh, racing the Peri-Dakar in the 80s. So we did have the family team in the 80s where we raced the Peri-Dakar and I won the truck category with my father in 85. And so I've done it from 83 to 86, four times. And when you're a small team in the, in the Rally Perry Dakar at that time, um, you had to do every single job that is in racing, you had to do on your own. It was the planning, the admin, uh, the entries, the finding the sponsors, preparing the car, and then during the race uh, to make sure that you had the food, was navigating, was driving, was being the mechanic, being the engineer, and, and, and every single job that 
is in racing you had to do yourself. I think with that, I really appreciated all the various efforts in racing. And uh, I found that every job has to be done excellent and the best to get the best result. But if you don't really care about the food, if you are in the rally Dakar, your body gets weak and you can't be at your best and you will not win. And uh, if your admin isn't right, if you take and waste too much time at the borders, you will not win. If you have a problem in the car and you don't fix it immediately when you find it, you will not win the rally. And uh, I think with that gave me the huge experience of all various jobs that are in racing and also make me appreciate all these jobs. And that helped me largely in my career in racing. I would say to, to build your your expertise, your experience level through Perry Dakar is really something there. I mean, talk about, you know, a race where you have to be on the edge of performance, reliability, robustness, the whole team effort. It's, it's amazing. It's incredible. Um, I would say you definitely learn absolutely a lot uh, around that, but probably made when you then moved into, into Porsche to work in the racing division in the eighties, probably running Carrera and the super cup series look like child's play almost <laughs> because the Perry Dakar is so complicated, maybe in comparison to some of those things. But uh, as I was reading a bit into your time in Porsche with the racing division, I was quite interested to see that you were also involved in 1990 for Porsche Le Mans, where you yeah. won uh, in with the Dower 962. I believe that's similar to the Group C Porsche 962. Is that correct? The car was based on the Group C 962, um, but there was the, the GT1 category was very new, was the first year in 94. And uh, as, at Porsche, we wanted to race the GT, the GT1, as we have seen, uh, I believe that this is the future of sports car racing. Um, and uh, you needed a road homologation for the, uh, for the car. And um, then we see that Dauer had uh, has done, had done the road homologation for the 962. So we helped him to finish the road homologation, get the car on the road, and with that road homologation, uh, we, could, we could do then the GT1s and enter two GT1s based on the 962 in Le Mans. Of course, it was then not original, the, uh, like the 962 Group C, because you had then different tire regulations, weight regulation, and so on. So we didn't believe we are would be capable of uh, winning the overall, but being the first winner of the GT1 category. But um, I think then it went so well that finally we could beat the Toyota and won the overall Le Mans in '94. What was was a huge, great experience and saying uh, a huge, huge day in my career. That's amazing. And it's very timely because, as you know, we just had uh, Le Mans just this past weekend. And actually, yeah. we saw Ferrari win Le Mans for the first time in 58 years. So maybe yeah. you can speak on, yeah, speak on the achievement. It's, it's great to see the sports car racing coming back like this with, with manufacturers getting in. And I've, I've followed it on the TV and seen the enthusiasm. And there were, I read, read that there were 375,000 spectators over the weekend in the mall. This is fantastic to see this category coming back. 
Absolutely. And, and so maybe you can also speak to how hard it is to win at Le Mans, because when, you know, as, as an outsider looking <laughs> in, as watching it for many years, I just, I, th I see it as sort of this fast chaos filled, you know, 24 hours where you're just waiting for the next thing to come up and troubleshoot that the way to just keep going and keep surviving. What is it like to win Le Mans and how hard is it? Yeah, it's, I think it's very much like uh, my belief for all racing that you win races at home and not at the racetrack. So if you come with a car that is capable of winning, then the race team can make it win. If you come to the race with a car that is not capable of winning, uh, the, the best race team can't make it win. And that it's very much so in Le Mans. It's a lot of preparation that goes into Le Mans, a lot of pre-testing, a lot of of 24-hour runs at that time, at least. Um, there was not that much simulation in the, in the 90s, so you really had to go testing. And it was a huge program to go testing to make sure that every single problem that occurred during testing got solved. Um, and then you know you get still additional problems uh, in the race because uh, you can test and prepare as much as hard as you want, it's never as hard as the racing itself. And um, then we could, but we were so well prepared that we could solve all the problems. And we had a fantastic team. The Porsche factory team was, I think, always in history, it was one of the best or even the best racing teams around the globe. And especially at, um, they meant so many times they won the Group C in Le Mans and then going with the GT1 based on the Group C. The team was just outstanding and was was really fighting and we were determined to win. And when we've seen that we had the chance against the Group C Toyotas, then I think everybody was alerted and worked at its very best. And uh, and it's so great if you win it and if you achieve it. And it's just a second of well, a couple of seconds where you're really proud for yourself and for the team and enjoy that. And I think that's worthwhile, all the hard work for over a year, just enjoying these couple of seconds. That's amazing. That's amazing. So much work going into 24 <coughs> hours. And, you know, if you have some sort of unfortunate incident during a race and then you end up putting it in the wall, it's just, it must feel like such a letdown, I could imagine. And we, previously, we actually had a former uh, Red Bull Racing performance engineer, Blake Hinsey, on the podcast. And we talked a bit about that. We talked a bit about how much work goes into pre-race preparation, performance engineering, and then also in between free practice sessions and things like that. I imagine that Le Mans is quite extensive with that as well. Yeah, you need, you need, yeah, it's a lot of dyno testing and it's a lot of running on racetracks. Um, and, and the, you know, the test is not a two, three hour test. You have to run the car. 24 plus hours every time and this is very hard for the for all the team as you're not swapping people uh, around in these 24 hours so you are fully loaded and when the team goes to the Le Mans to the actual race they have done a lot of 24-hour preparations and um, and it's really focusing the whole year on that one race and then it's all or nothing, isn't it? If you are in a race series, if it's Formula One, it's World Rally Championship, whatever, 
if you lose one, you know, the next one is a week or two weeks later and you can improve, you can prove yourself again. With Le Mans, you have one chance a year, that's it. And if you fail, it's another year. Um, and, and then you don't have lots of chances to win. That's amazing. That's that's why, you know, I, I could definitely feel the joy and the excitement from the Ferrari team as they as they won Le Mans this year, not just 58 years, but you could tell all the pre-race preparation, all the work that went into the design and the build of that car to get it to that point. It, uh, I, I felt their joy for sure. Yeah, it's also it's also if you don't win, if you struggle, if like like the Toyota guys, I think they also deserved and were really looking forward to win the hundreds, uh, 24 hours of Le Mans. And <clears throat> then you see you have for one team, you have the glory, you have the excitement, you have the win. But there are the most of the teams, everybody beside one, they are really disappointed and they worked so hard for one year and then didn't get what they really wanted to achieve and didn't win and uh, see that they have to work even harder and better for next year and come back. I think that makes really the spirit of racing. It is if you lose, you fight even harder, you want to come back, you try again. Uh, and you have to be mind in racing. You have more bad days than good days. And that you that then you really have to enjoy the good days. But the hard days, they make you better. They make you work even harder. They make you more focused. Um, and you still have to be so determined. And most of the guys who are in racing, then they don't give up. You, you lose one time, you lose two times, three times, and you still fight for winning once and you never give up. I think that for me attracts most in racing is that, yeah, you don't win, but you fight even harder and you get more motivation out of not winning to really get this day and get these couple of seconds of enjoyment and pride when you then win. That's for me is what makes motorsport so very special. Absolutely. Pain is a great motivator, if, especially if you're able to take that pain and turn it into positive energy. So let's let's fast forward a little bit to 1996. You joined Sauber, the F1 team. And from 1998 to 2001, you were the COO of Red Bull Sauber. So just maybe for some of our listeners who aren't brushed up on their history, Red Bull Sauber started in, in 95 with Dietrich Matasic throwing his hat into the Formula One ring. And, and you, you can really see how far Red Bull has come, right? From that time when yeah. they were just a, you know, a sponsor to then in 2004 being a full racing team after the purchase of the Jaguar racing team. And unfortunately, you know, last year we, we lost Dietrich. And um, it was a very sad time, I think, for all of motorsports, um, you know, across across the different disciplines. He had such an impact. And um, and I'm sure you probably had some interactions with him along. Yeah, um, I had quite a lot of interactions with him. It was, you know, one of my my best friends from racing motocross and enduro is Heinz Kinnigartner, the Austrian who has been motocross world champion. And he was the first, the first motorsport guy being sponsored and partnered with Red Bull. So I had this link into Red Bull from a very early age and seen what they have done. Um, 
seeing that the good friend is supported by Red Bull and was the first guy. And then when I went to Sauber, then uh, Red Bull bought into the team during the time I was there. I started there in 96 to build up the commercial company Red Bull Sauber Engineering that was <coughs> local uh, um, localized uh, just beside the Formula One team. So I had... Uh, uh, I had the relations with the guys there. Max Velti, who was my boss at Porsche as a motorsport director, he went to Sauber, where he came, where he was before as well, and uh, he convinced me to join to join Sauber Petronas Engineering and build up the commercial engineering department or company. And then in '98, they the, the Formula One team they did an external study. Uh, and uh, to find out what they have to do to become more competitive in Formula One. And, um, and the result was that the team has to develop <clears throat> sorry, from a traditional race team into an uh, engineering and process-driven uh, engineering company. And then, as I just said, was in charge of building up the, the Sauber Petronas engineering. Then they asked me if I would like to do to implement this process and change the team as a COO uh, to get better performing in in Formula One, and uh, I think that was a great, great challenge. Yeah, and a challenge that was definitely helped out by the signing of uh, young Iceman Kimi Raikkonen, <laughs> who in two thousand one helped uh, the team to get to fourth in the constructor standings. What was it like having Kimi Raikkonen on the race team? fiery guy yeah it was you know it's now in 2000 we were looking for let's say who we had to replace alessi and uh, say who we want and we looked into jensen button at that time but he has signed at reno at the time we we're there and uh and, Jen, and jensen's manager said that he's got the young thing who is really good and we should look into um, he gave me the name and I did some research in the magazines and I found out that he won kart races in, in the wet with, with slick tires because he could then the family couldn't afford wet tires. And, um, and I've seen what he followed him in his couple of Formula 3 races he had done. was not many, it was only I think four or five when, when talked to him. And we, uh, we invited him to Hinville. And uh, I think from the first time I met him, looking into his eyes and seeing his determination, it was clear that um, it's, we said, I, I want this guy to race for Sauber. And it was then quite hard to convince Peter. Uh, Peter then first offered him a test contract because he didn't have lots of experience. And you know he was 19 years old at that time and he said peter i'm not a test driver i'm a race driver if i can't race in formula one i prefer racing and continuing formula renault or formula three <laughs> and and that was a a guy who has the chance to become a test driver in formula one just says no with the age of 19. and uh, wow. i think all uh, his behavior and his determination and his self-belief was so so impressive that uh, we said, okay, yeah, we go for him. And I think it was rightly so. And he did fantastic right from the beginning, from the first time he got in the car, he was extremely impressive. 
Yeah, I think drivers like Kimi, Max Verstappen, I mean, you know, Lewis Hamilton, the the amount of self-confidence that these drivers have in their abilities is just something you, you yeah. must, it must be in their DNA, I imagine. I mean, to drive on the edge of control like they do and, and feel confident that, that you can handle anything that comes your way must just be something you all the greats <laughs> have, I would imagine. Yeah, they are very special characters and very special people, and uh, and so driven for success. It was really great to work with these kind of people. is is absolutely stunning. That's fantastic. So then, you know, in two in two thousand one, you moved into uh, a role with Ford Motor Company, and uh, I believe I read somewhere that you were involved somewhat with the F one fifty Raptor and the Mustang Shelby GT five hundred. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. Because I I went to Ford of Europe, and uh, I think Martin Leach, who was at that time the vice president for R and D in Ford of Europe, he uh, we had the talk and uh, he wanted me for the job to bring back the performance models for Ford, so the STs and RS. And Martin was the former former kart driver and then because of back problem he couldn't, but he was racing against against Senna and he was really fast. And and he was a motorsport guy, so we were on the same, had the same spirit, had the same thoughts, the same ideas. And very quickly we became friends as well and worked so well together at Ford. And we created the, the ST models, the Focus RS. Um, and then after that, you know, again, he made me, in addition, the motorsport director for Ford of Europe before when we had huge success in WRC where we won the manufacturer's championship in 2006 and seven. And it was also winning it after 27 years for Ford again in 2006. And um, then the next step in Ford was going to the US and become the global uh, head of the global performance vehicles. And that then included all the STs and RS models that were based in Europe, but also the vehicles that were developed at SVT. So at that time was the stage to finally develop the F-150 Raptor and also the, the Mustang Shelby GT500 that it's always developed with SVT and what it's now Ford Performance. So that was really a great time. I, I would imagine. I am actually a, a Ford fan at some point in, in my life when I was a young, a young kid tinkering with cars. I had a 96 Mustang Cobra SVT and that was definitely oh, nice. fun to drive around. It was, nice. it was probably a little too fast for the age that I was, definitely, but I, I enjoyed it immensely. So as, as we know, you know, in the news, there's uh, recently Ford is joining with Red Bull uh, for 2026. You know, <laughs> Red Bull will be developing their own uh, engine, and but they'll have a, a relationship. Uh, hopefully it's more than just a monetary relationship. I believe Ford is going to be bring some technology from the uh, electric vehicle side potentially into the hybrid systems. What are your thoughts on uh, that partnership between Ford and, and Red Bull for 2026? I think that's fantastic. It's a great opportunity for Ford. And uh, when I was in the US, I worked with Jim Farley. He was vice president for marketing and sales. And I was director SVT. So we had quite uh, some interaction. 
And I was also in charge of global motorsport business development for Ford. And there I worked closely with Jim as well. So um, knowing him from there, I could imagine that he picks up that opportunity as this is a brilliant opportunity for Ford to get back in Formula One. And also uh, the guys I worked with in racing, some of those are still there and uh, still we became friends and we're still in touch. So they are so motivated and I think Ford will be a great partner for Red Bull. And I'm absolutely convinced uh, it will be a very successful project. As Ford is a great company where, where I always loved working for Ford with great people. And uh, it's a global company with global attitude and, and global uh, culture as well. It's, it's a fantastic company, it's a fantastic team, and it was really great to work there. And Jim Farley is a fantastic guy, he's just a motorsport enthusiast, but he also sees the business behind it and the opportunities he has. So he, he, he did a brilliant choice in, in getting back in Formula One with Red Bull. Absolutely. It it really feels like a match made in heaven. And I would say uh, that, you know, maybe for some some of our listeners who, <laughs> who, again, aren't so keyed into the history of Formula One, you know, the Cosworth engine, the Ford Cosworth engine is a big part of Formula One racing history. So it's great to have Ford back into Formula One. Um, I was, you know, kind of hoping that at some point, you know, we might get this merging of, you know, the old Ford engines and the Red Bull powertrain engines, but let's see what the future brings. Yeah, and you know, it's when I was the early years at Ford, when I started uh, being motorsport director for Ford, I was in charge of the engine program for the Jordan team. So I worked with Eddie Jordan as he had the Cosworth engine and Cosworth belonged to Ford. So I was in charge of, of that program. And then, you know, now the Red Bull team was originally the, the Stewart team and then the Jaguar team. And uh, what was my time at Ford as well. And uh, when the Ford guys talked to me that they would be willing to sell the team. And if, as I know, Mateschitz, if they would, he would be interested I did the first call to Mateschitz and said the team is available and if he would be interested. So then when you see that the whole story comes then back, working for, for Cosmos, the Formula One engine um, with, with Eddie Jordan and then finally being involved in Red Bull acquiring the Jaguar Formula One team is, is quite nice to look back and see the success they are having now. Wow, yes, I did not know that story. That's incredible. I'm, I myself am a Red Bull Racing fan, so I can say that, uh, you know, I got a chance to talk to someone who uh, actually was one of the ones to get uh, the Red Bull Racing team uh, on the radar for Dietrich Matisic from, from Jaguar side. That's really a fantastic story. Wow. So, yeah, well, yeah so interesting times. And uh, to see that it works then out in that way is. It's just very, very nice to see him. If in the later I've been the competitor to them, but it's still, uh, you know, to being a competitor, you can still, you have to respect your competitors and you can be friends with your competitors. But when the, the flag drops, then you are fighting and you want to beat them, but you still can be friends. And I think this is the attitude you have to have in racing.
Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you mentioned previously about your time with Volkswagen with uh, World Rally Cross. So this is a great chance for us to step into that phase of your career. So from 2012 to 2016, you led three World Rally Chips during four. Those, those four years. Four. Yeah, four. Four. Oh, wow. I... Yeah. <laughs> uh, apologies. <laughs> no problem. So, yeah, so for some of our listeners who maybe, you know, most of our listeners are into Formula One, but I think World Rallycross is something that uh, is just fat. Really, if you're into motorsports, I mean, to see the amount of skill that the drivers have, you know, and as an engineer to think about the amount of engineering that goes into a car like that to be able to handle a multitude of different racing conditions environments but also be robust enough to survive an entire race distance as well as perform at a high level what goes into being a world champion rallycross team i mean what what does it take to get there yeah we're talking about world rally not rallycross rallycross is different and we can come to rallycross because i have been involved in that as well right from the beginning but uh, from, for rallying, you know, the Rally World Championship is um, when I was at Volkswagen and, and at Ford, it was 12 to 14 rallies a year all over the world. And the rallies take a week. You have first the recce, so the drivers can on the Wednesday, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, they can drive through the stages where, you, where the time is counting and taken. You can drive twice through that. So to learn the stages and the co-drivers write down their notebook, their roadbook. And, <clears throat> and then it's a three-day rally. It starts Friday, Saturday, Sunday mornings around six o'clock and finishes around midnight every day, Sunday in the afternoon. So, and this is action-packed from yeah, nearly 24-7 for three to five days. And uh, it's not like you have an hour practice and then finally you have the race into hours you have a race over three days where you have to be alerted work on the car the mechanics have only a certain time to work on the car and uh, and the mechanics are really a part of the competition and we could change the gearbox in less than 11 minutes on that car in service wow wow and and the car has to be designed for that the mechanics have to practice it because that can be winning or losing a rally and, uh, the, and uh, the spectators can come into the service park and get very close to the cars. And when the mechanics finish everything in time and don't get the penalty then, then they get standing ovations by the spectators. And that makes the mechanics the stars in rallying because they are part of the competition. And they have to do a brilliant job being extremely fast and being extremely determined to, uh, to succeed in rallying. And that gives also a very close relationship with the mechanics, the engineers and the drivers. So it's, it's for me, this is the most exciting motorsport. It sounds very exciting. <laughs> and, and as an engineer myself, it's fascinating to think about all the things that have to go into a design to make sure that it's not only, you know, as we, we talked about reliable, but you can actually disassemble and reassemble it quite quickly. There's a lot of engineering that goes into something like that. So that's really and fascinating. And everybody interested in racing and motorsport, I can really, I would recommend go and watch a world rally 
championship event for a weekend and get this experience. Go out on the stages, in the forest, watch the cars driving, then go in the service park, see the work. And it's a three-day experience uh, that I really would recommend every motorsport enthusiast to go and see. I actually remember when I was living in Germany, there were some uh, broadcasts, I believe it was of rallying, where they were they were doing courses through these small German villages, it seemed like, and maybe Dutch villages as well. It seemed quite interesting to me. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, the German rally in the part, the rally that has been in the World Rally Championship was around Trier, so in the southwest, and went mainly through the vineyards. And it was amazing to see the cars racing through the vineyards. It was, it was just unbelievable. That's incredible. So then, uh, after your time with, with Volkswagen, you went uh, for a short period of time you, to McLaren <laughs> Racing, and you got to work for Ron Dennis. And Ron Dennis is uh you know is someone that's incredibly well known um you know different different opinions over his uh demeanor over the course of his career but the one thing that cannot be stated enough was his role in the growth of mclaren not only the portfolio of their you know in their uh in their regular automobile line but also obviously in the formula one team and the success that he had just from, I think, I, I believe it was from when he started to then in four years from 1980 to 2009, becoming a top tier team. What, what is it about Ron Dennis? I imagine you got a chance to really know him and, 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 you know, um, and, and speak to him quite a bit. What makes him so special? What, what is it about a great leader to turn around a team like McLaren? Yeah, when I got approached from uh, for the CEO job at Williams, then um, of course at first I couldn't really believe it. Is it that was so far out what I could ever imagine? And uh, I've been a McLaren fan since uh, since I was a child, and uh, and you know I admired Ron, and for Ron approaching me personally and want me as the CEO to run his team was. <clears throat> something I needed a couple of days to sink in that this is really true. And then we had the discussions and I met him a couple of times and it took quite a while to discuss. As you can imagine with Ron, he wants to know all the details. He wants to be 100% sure that he gets the right person to run his team or for any job. And uh, we created a really good uh, relationship. And uh, as I admired him with and I've uh, seen he is very, let's say, very focused, very detailed, and yeah, very determined. And I created a really good, friendly relationship with him, and it was so great to work with him. Even it was only three months, but I learned so much in in before I started the job in negotiating with him, discussing with him the future of the team, where he wants to take it, and then working with him was a fantastic experience. I would not want to miss. And and so this is a you know great time to transition to that role with Williams. I think for you know some of the newer uh, Formula One racing fans, they'll probably recognize you the most from from that time that you spent with with Williams. So let's camp out here for a bit. So I'm going to take you back to August 2021 at the Belgium Grand Prix in Spa, and it was quite a wet weekend. 
and yes. uh, you know, and, and qualifying was very interesting. I remember from Q1 to Q2, just so many teams and on the intermediate tires. And I believe even in Q3 at one point, people were on the full wets at one point, but George Russell was on it the whole time through qualifying Q1, Q2, Q3. I mean, this wasn't some sort of a, you know, fluke Q3 incident. He was in the top 10 through Q1, Q2, and then in Q3, he's P2 and only beat out at the very last run as the as it hit zeros by Max Verstappen. And then as we go on to the race, again, a rain-soaked Sunday, a couple laps behind the safety car and to what was that like for the team what was that experience like that weekend but yeah it's this is again a moment like winning Le Mans is that, that when you have a car that is really not competitive and you make it on the podium and a lot of people said ah oh, yeah you didn't really deserve it there was no race and 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 but the way how would the team could manage to get on p2 was was not by luck it was by um, you know, I can tell you the story is the official weather forecast was that it starts raining in the last couple of minutes before the end of Q3. And our weather information that I really trusted was that it will start a minute or two after Q3. So if you, if you believe the rain starts before the end of the qualifying, you go out with quite a high amount of fuel um you go do a fast lap a slow lap again prepare for another fast lap because the track gets faster and faster until it really starts to rain but with that strategy if you believe it starts raining before the end of the qualifying you have to do this but you know the tires get slightly slower from lap to lap the the the, the fuel gets lighter but the car gets hotter and you can't prepare the car for the ultimate lap. And as we believe in our weather forecast that it will rain just after Q3, we stayed in the garage and people said, we, you know, I, we got messages. Are you stupid? Everybody's out. You're in the garage. And then we prepared really for this final lap, believing that it will not rain according to the data we had. And then we could go out, prepare the tires rightly for one lap, having the lowest amount of fuel, the car being perfectly prepared. And that made uh, George, and George being focused on that lap, and he did an outstanding job as well, uh, getting the P2 in, in, in qualifying. And I think this, this strategy, this how the team believed in the data we had, this commitment that everybody gave in that fast and this last lap really made us deserve the podium. And then the podium for the team was like something we've never expected. And it, it really uh, welded the team again so much together. That, and that was a big, a big part of, was it, of building the future for Williams to be successful again. Absolutely. And, and I, I know a few who work or have worked for Williams in the past and something that they've all told me is that feeling like it's a family and, you know, you can't help but think back to, you know, Frank and, and everything that he instilled. And, you know, I know the Williams family is not, you know, involved um, like they used to be in the past, but you have to think that kind of that, 
that feeling of family and, and, and you know it's great to hear you speak about that y'all from that weekend because you could see it you know you could see it on everybody's faces as you all celebrated that it really meant something and that everybody came together and it's fascinating to understand how that happened i did not know that story but that really is uh you know a stroke of genius by the team there that's fa that's fascinating and this is where i see the the family feeling within williams is still there and the, the spirit of frank is still within the team and that's what was also for the new owners and for me it was very important that the name is not changing yeah i, I believe the name should never change and uh, it keeps Frank's spirit and, uh, and the, the spirit keeps the team together as well. And everybody working at Williams is still very proud to work for Williams. And many say still we work for Frank and uh, you feel his spirit everywhere in the company. And this makes the team very, very special. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about George Russell as well. You know, you mentioned his his lap and the job that he did there in Q3. I, I watched that on board many times after it happened. And he was he was on the edge of control. But, you know, George Russell is someone that, uh, you know, when he had that coming together with Valtteri as well, I think I saw that fire in him, um, you know, after that. But you know, now George is, you know, he left Williams, you know, while you were with, with the team there and he went to, oh, to, uh, to Mercedes. Um, what kind of driver is George Russell? What is Mercedes getting in George Russell? And people say he can be a future world champion. What could make him? Yeah, I, I, I believe he will be future world champion and multiple world champion. I'm fully convinced. Uh, first, he is a, he's a fantastic character. He is very smart. He is very, again, very determined. He is a team builder. He can motivate the team. He can work with the team. He listens, but he also is forcing uh, if he wants something. He's very outspoken. And he, his driving capabilities are absolutely fantastic. And you see that in Spa, where where you know he can always get another one, two or three tens out if what what the car can't give really. Yeah. Let's say the car yeah. can do this lap time, he can get a lap out that is faster than the lap time the car is capable of delivering. And especially there where you see this is the one lap, it's we took the risk on the weather because we believed in it. And he knew this is his chance. The pressure for him is really, really high there. And what I've seen with George, that he gets better and better the higher the pressure gets. I think this is uh, what, what, what really makes an excellent race driver, that the pressure makes him getting better and not, not weaker. And, and he really enjoys that pressure and then delivering. And, and he's such a, and you see, you see, if you see him then him after Spa or when he got points, the emotions, that he has he is he's able to show his emotions and he gets mm. his emotions out and that is so important for the whole team yeah that he is not the cool guy when he gets out and and for this p2 he cried and he went to the team and he cried with everybody it's it's just such a, a, a guy who knows why he could be so successful there as the team did everything for him to do that 
and he gets the team behind him. Everybody in the team wants him to be successful. And, you know, the, the mechanics, the engineers, they don't work for the team principal or I say they officially work for, but they don't give everything or more than 100% for the team principal or for a CEO or whatever. They only give it if they love the driver and want give it for the driver because the driver can show the performance on the track. And this is a huge part of a really good race driver to get his guys or girls working more than 100% for him because they want him to be successful. And he is extremely good in that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because it, we've had a few other discussions with, you know, uh, Lindsay from Red Bull Racing. And one of the things he mentioned about you know, whether it was Alex Albon at the time or Max Verstappen, you know, just the relationship that the drivers have with, you know, the team, the the on-track race team, you know, not just the team principal, but everybody, you know, stopping in the factory as well and saying hi to people. It yeah. just really makes the team want to work that much harder for that driver because they know that driver's invested, that driver's not only invested in the car and the performance, but also invested in them and as a team as well. Yeah, this is so important. And I think everyone who's really successful does it and has this capability. Absolutely. So in 2022, I think it was an interesting time, I'm sure, in, in your career with Williams, because you were part of one of the biggest regulation changes uh, <coughs> maybe ever in Formula One. Um, it was a complete reset of the aerodynamic regulations. You know, there was also a change to the um, to the fuel uh, you know, what was in the fuel, which affected the performance of the of the engines, the ICEs. But in 2022, we got the biggest change, which was the update to the aero packaging of the car. 44 was released um, in 2022, and it came out with a very interesting side pod design. I remember it. You know, maybe the limelight was stolen a little bit by Mercedes, who came out with no pod, but <laughs> Williams had to. <laughs> A, a very small side pod. It wasn't quite the no pod, but it was aggressively downwashing. And I was especially keen to to see that, you know, as someone that loves aerodynamics. But then in June 2022, you shifted the, the design and went away from the uh, kind of mini pod design you had and more of a Red Bull style downwashing design. And people have talked quite a bit, whether it was Aston Martin and, you know, they made their move and their change to kind of the downwashing design, which they then adopted further or developed further. But people talk about copying designs. And I, I really don't like to refer to it as that. I talk about design convergence because I think this is a natural part of performance engineering. But how do you assess a design? You know, when you see different designs on the grid, you see different things that other teams are doing. How do you assess what could work, what you want to try, and what elements you might want to put in the car? You know, that's an interesting question. And uh, as we talked before, you, uh, you're an expert in fluid dynamics. <laughs> and, and I studied fluid dynamics during my engineering degree. So we know a bit about it. And think the phase to decide which which strategy and which concept you go with a complete new regulation is really exciting. You know, you had you get you got again uh, the opportunity to get downforce through the floor, 
what was the idea of the regulation to get less downforce through the rear wings, make the rear wings smaller so that the dirty air is behind the car is not that bad that it makes it possible again for cars to follow each other closely and improve overtaking. But then you have to, to um, evaluate and do a lot of CFD work and wind tunnel work with different concepts. So what gives you the best package? Is the best package to, to focus on the floor and to get the maximum downforce through the floor? Or do you still focus to get the maximum downforce through uh, focusing on the rear wing or everything in the middle? And when, you, when we've seen, it was really exciting to see the different solutions that came out in 22 with no team knowing what any of the other teams is doing. <laughs> and, and that is quite so. Nobody knew anything about the other team. And then coming with different solutions that are still very close in competitiveness. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, the purposing hit and the cars with the solution to focus really on the floor, um, they, then you have to have a very low right height. And like we also, we couldn't uh, run the right height on the tracks that would have maximized the performance of the car. Uh, because then you got into that purposing. And I think that was other teams as well. And then when uh, I think it's copying is the wrong word, it, it is part of the competition that you watch what competition is doing. And you have to access what the, when say there is a car like the Red Bull is that uh, overperforming over the others, you have to analyze and try to get the maximum information through photos and um, to analyze what it what it means, but it's not just, and, and you understand that uh, the aerodynamics is so complex on the car. As long as you don't have the full car and everything and the understanding and the know how why it works, then you just can't copy. And you have Absolutely. to understand if you do change to the car, you have to understand what it means and how this change works with all your other aerodynamic. Uh, means you have on the car and there are more than 250 so it's not copying you can see there is a different concept and but then even to change the concept is a very tricky and difficult situation what you see with Mercedes as well because if you start with the concept and change the concept you start very much from scratch and where the other team who has that concept is already two or three years into that and understands it fully. So then to copy or go with a diff, change the concept and to get them as competitive as the team who ran with that concept right from the beginning and evolved it already a lot is an unbelievable difficult task. Yeah, Joost, I'm I'm glad you said it because I have been saying this for <laughs> for some weeks now, especially after uh, Monaco, where we had really a, a veritable buffet of uh, floor images that we got to see. Which, as you mentioned, you know, the bulk of the downforce is coming from the floors, and the floors are your IP. You know, and you want to 
you want to protect that at all costs. And in Monaco, the uh, marshals uh, were gracious <laughs> enough to lift every car up in the air so we could see all yeah. of the floors. And uh, we got a chance to see the RB19 floor in pre in 2022 we also got to see after checo put it in the wall we got to see their floor and and something that people have been talking about is well why can't you just take you know the red bull floor and put it on the williams for instance and it's just as you said Jost. the car is a it's a veritable symphony and there are notes and there are tempos of the aerodynamics from front to back the front wing setting up the flow for the rest of the car which yeah. then cascades over the side pod to the rear end of the car where you're generating downforce and extracting, you know, power from, from the floor itself. You simply cannot take one aspect of a team's car and just strap it on and then all of a sudden be fast. You know? okay, so I'm so happy to hear you say that because I've been saying that for some weeks now and uh, I get very excited when we dynamics yeah that's why the teams are not too worried about that the other teams see the floor of course they try to avoid that but just seeing the floor it doesn't give you the performance uh you have to understand the whole system of the car and that makes it it makes it so difficult but also so exciting yeah and it's Absolutely. exactly as you said but you have to look at your competition you have to understand what they are doing why they are doing it you have to analyze this. This is part of competition, isn't it? And it would be stupid not doing this and not looking to competition. I think that's in every sport it's like this, yeah? You have to know what your competitors are doing and analyzing why, and then try to get better for yourself. Yeah, ganz genau, as we say in German, Jost. It's, uh, you're exactly correct. We, I love to see um, Adrian Newey on the grid exploring <laughs> with his little and looking yeah. at other competitors cars and you know just recently um you know um red bull had made a change to the corner of their diffuser where they added a bit of a there was a bit of a it's almost like a bulge in the corner of their diffuser and this is actually something that williams had done originally mm -hmm. and then mercedes then adopted it so it's not just only looking at the teams that are say at the top of the grid but it's looking across the entire grid and and seeing hey what's interesting on their car that we can potentially use and we might be able to observe if it gives us any gains yeah but you see edwin yui as you mentioned he's not leaning back as they have the fastest car he is walking on the grid up and down and really in, looks in all the single details the other cars have and then tries to understand why have they done this change and and then if he understands then they go and try to implement that into their system of the car but they first try to understand what it means and why and then understand if it would evolve their car and then go and do it yeah that's right that's right so i've got some more questions here i'm really appreciative of your time Jost. so you uh in 2022 as well after you lost george russell you signed alex albon and and alex albon had you know <laughs> taken a year sabbatical you know after after leaving red bull and and it turned out to be a very inspired signing as well magic about spa yes you know p10 with uh with alex albon and spa in 2022 and uh, just seems to be a track that you all uh, understood quite well i guess but uh, at the time there was some speculation as well you know when you were looking into who you might sign that 
that there was a driver linked with Mercedes, and you know either it was going to be Van Dorn or DeVries, which we now see DeVries on the grid mm-hmm. uh, with with Alpha Tauri. Um, can you tell us about that selection process? You talked about the selection process of choosing the Iceman back in the day, but what was it like in in the new era of Formula One? You know, choosing a driver like Alex Albon, and and what do you look at and how they can say improve the culture of your team? You know, you talked about the family atmosphere. Into it, I think that it's it's a very complex um, decision process to look for a driver. Because I very much believe that the driver has to fit to the team and to the situation the team is in. Yeah. So as Williams was still at the back, and and will take a couple of years to to get really competitive, as there is a lot to do. Um, you need a driver who is willing to fight and give it all for a team that is not in the lead. Um, but you need a driver as a team at, at Williams who has, if you want to bring the team forward, you need a driver with experience and you need a driver that is respected by the engineers uh, and can influence the engineers and you need a driver who is really hungry. And when we see that all these attitudes were best fitted to Alex as he raced for Alpha, Alpha Tauri and for Red Bull. So he had the experience of a top team. He understood how the top team works, the processes. <clears throat> then he had a year off and he knew that is, if he gets another chance, that he has to grab it with both hand, hands because uh, it's very unlikely you get a third chance. So he had to prove himself. Um, that he was very grateful to get the seat again. Um, and also from the personality, he is a really a person, again, with very similar to George, from the team building, influencing the team, making the team work for him. And also George and him are very good friends. And George was very, uh, let's say, positive talking about him and also was supporting the discussions with Alex. And when I first talked to him and said, okay, yeah, he seems to be the right guy for the team. And with everything where he went through and what he had done, I think he would be the right choice for Williams in the situation Williams was in in 22 and still is. And uh, I believe it has has proven that it was a really good choice. I think also De Vries is an excellent driver. And I built through 21, I built a really good relationship with him. And it was hard for me to tell him, you will not get the seat because I really like him as well. I really like his character. He's different to Alec, but he can achieve exactly the same. And what he showed when he got in the car for Alex in Monza was is his first ever Formula One race was really unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And when uh, yeah. Uh, but he didn't have the experience of a Formula One team in 21 that Alex has uh, had for yeah for the 22 season. But but he I think he's, he's a very capable driver and in the moment it's not working well for him at Alpha Tauri, but he's much better than the results uh, he's showing right now. Yeah, I think that's something that uh, you know I 
personally am going to watch as the year goes on. You know, DeVries' performance, you know, in the Williams when when Alex wasn't there was was fascinating. It was just the talk of the weekend. And to see, you know, his his tough run of form so far with uh with Alpha Tauri is is interesting. But it is very much, you know, the car and the driver need to be matched together. You know, into really a harmonious kind of a an atmosphere there, so yeah, it doesn't seem to, to be working. Getting better race by race, yeah, it's absolutely uh, really the last races were really encouraging. So I'm sure by the end of the season he will be highly competitive and he will get the maximum of the car. I'm absolutely convinced. Yeah, let's hope so. I think so as well. So now you know you you have left Williams and uh, now James Vowles is, uh, is, is in your, your former seat there. Um, have you, did you have a chance to get to know James a little bit before, uh, before you left and, and what sort of a challenge is ahead of James as he looks to bring Williams back to the front? No, the last, you know, the last two years and then when I was at Williams uh, as being, a, uh, being the engine customer for Mercedes, of course I had, lots of discussions nearly every race with with James and uh, we really liked working with each other and having discussions about also strategies about the future of Formula One and so on so he's a really capable guy he's very intelligent and I believe he's the right choice to be team principal for Williams uh, as I, I wanted to do that for two years and then said okay when the base is late then we need younger people who stay there for a long time and can then build on the bases. Uh, as it's always very difficult to start and put the base in place. That can go wrong. And if you put the young guy in there, uh, then it can really damage and hurt his career. And that's what what I also didn't want. This why I said, okay, I go in, go for two years, do do the the base, and then a young guy can take over and can learn from that. And we had discussion before he started and uh, I gave him my input and uh, we talked from time to time. We talked in Miami and, and he was really appreciative that, uh, that we had this discussion, that he didn't have to start from zero and get in not knowing what to expect, that he had that and uh, that was the basis for him to work on. So, and I think he's doing a brilliant job with the team. Yeah, that's... That's a really great story as well. I didn't know the background to how that how that developed over the course of those two years that you were at Williams. But I, you know, have am quite impressed with James, you know, from his time, you know, with Mercedes, but also obviously and just the things that he's saying and and the way that he's um not only engaging with the fans and being very open and communicative as well as to where they are and what they're planning to do, but it seems like he's a dynamic leader as well which is, uh, you know, and I can obviously tell yourself, Yoss, that you you both are sort of cut from that same cloth. You seem to have a very uh, unique leadership style in the way that you motivate and lead people. And so I think he's he's certainly the right man uh, as well for, for Williams for these next few years. Yeah, yeah so, I absolutely believe that too. Yeah, so now moving into last few questions to more general <laughs> F1 related questions and I'm I'm ready to dive aerodynamic weeds with you a little bit Yoss. So um you know we talked about the aero regulations from 2022 and you know this year there's been some discussions about well uh that you know this dirty downforce and the things that that 
or that maybe it's the wake is starting to grow a bit and some drivers are complaining that it's getting harder to follow again mm -hmm. from your time at Williams, you know, in 2022 um, with the updated cars, with the, the, you know, the ability to follow closer in your opinion, are these aero regulations the right step forward for formula one? Are they working? Um, what's, what's your opinion on that? I believe it was the right step and was the right way because it was easier and still is easier to follow than it was before. But I think it's also a natural development. The more aero efficient the cars become, the, the, the worse is the air behind the cars again, because that goes hand in hand. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, that's why you need from time to time, you need new regulations and get changed it again. So, that you get more variation and get back to bases again. And that's where now the discussions are really up within the, the F1 commission and the technical directors, how the regulation for 26 look, because that's the right. next point when the regulations will change on the engine and on the, on the car side. That's right. And, and if you, you know, if the rumors are to be believed, then 2026 might actually bring, uh, adaptive or or uh, active aerodynamics which could be very interesting to see if they do find a way to implement that in formula one as we all know drs is a form of active aerodynamics but it's a form of drag reduction as or but drag um active aero be help with braking or things like that is a very interesting thought um as we look forward to 2026 so one of the big changes in 2021 that you were also part of was the cost cap and the implementation of the cost cap. And yeah. there's, there's been a few up and down years of the cost cap, you know, my team Red Bull had a, had an adventure through uh, the cost cap era themselves. Um, but the aim of the cost cap was really to prevent these bigger teams like Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull that have much bigger budgets from simply just running away from the competition in a development war. I think we've certainly seen teams have to be smarter with their updates. They have to be, uh, we've seen a lot of modularity of design this year, which is fantastic. You see that teams are finding ways to modulate the design of the rear wings so they can change them from race to race without having to change the complete assembly and have common use components, which is really fascinating. But in your opinion, you know, it's, it's taken some time for some of the back market teams to still catch up even with the cost cap. Is the cost cap working? Is there something that needs to change with the cost cap to bring the teams closer together? I think basically the cost cap was absolutely needed. And I believe Formula One have, would have been a huge risk in general without the cost cap because the gap between the smaller teams and the bigger teams was getting bigger and bigger yeah <clears throat> the cost cap gives everybody uh, on the same maximum spending but not every of the small teams can has the budget to invest to the limit of the cost cap so uh, you know, to utilize the cost cap, you have to have the money to spend up to the cost cap. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, there is a discussion now, and I brought this discussion up last year. It's with the cost cap, you freeze the gap if you don't do anything else. Yeah. So 
if you live in a castle and the other guy is living in a hut and then you equalize the budget, the guy still has the castle and the other guy is still in the hut. <laughs> yeah? That's true. <laughs> yeah, and if you say you can only have three bathrooms, the guy who has 10 goes down to three and the guy who has none uh, and can't invest because the, there is no gap in the cost cap, he will still not have a bathroom or he might get one. So what, what um, I believe that there should be um, like um, a list of infrastructure that a Formula One team should have and the teams who don't have that should have the ability above the cost cap to get to this standard of facility hmm. because otherwise you just freeze the, freeze the gap. Yeah? yeah, and if you want the small teams to catch up you have to give them the chance to catch up. Yeah, but that is, uh, that is uh, I think that's a difficult and long discussions as the teams who have the big infrastructure don't want the other teams to catch up. And there are also teams, even if they would have the, the allowance to catch up, they don't have the resources to catch up because their budgets are not that big. That's uh, right. So it's, it's a very tricky and difficult discussion. Uh, and if it, it takes a while to equalize the teams through the cost cap, but to say then, then the cost cap is wrong would be, um, very, very wrong because I believe the cost cap made formula one survive and growing. That's right. Yeah. Yes. You're right. It's, it's much more nuanced than just the, just the cost cap only, you know, it's something that. James also talked about as well from the Williams side of things, you know, with the, the level of facilities and things, yeah. the upgrades that need to happen. Um, it's also something that you see with Aston Martin, for instance, with Lawrence Stroll injecting the money that he has into that team. And they're able to now they've got a massive new building and a wind tunnel. I think Red Bull only recently is is upgrading their wind tunnel from the World War Two wind tunnel they've been mm -hmm. using for quite some time. So um, there is definitely an infrastructure piece there. And, you know, I also look at how how some of the, the profits from, you know, Formula One, Liberty Media, you know, are shared across the teams. And could there be any opportunity for maybe some uh, weighted sharing, you know, for some of the yeah. some of the teams that don't have this opportunity, maybe to drum up some of the uh, sponsorship and the, you know, revenue uh, into the team have access to potentially might be some opportunities to also yeah. fund some of the the lower teams on the grid to bring up the facilities as you mentioned there should be a, a common uh, expectation of a bare minimum of facilities and these facilities are what's needed that we need to find a way to make sure that the other teams have access to that exactly well. exactly exactly yeah. and that would be and i think i'm sure this discussion is kicked off the discussion is is uh, is taken on now with other teams as well, and uh, well, I'm I'm sure that we'll succeed to get this. But it's not like a one one meeting discussion and then it is sorted. But but I, it's going right. in the right direction. That's right. So if anybody from Formula One is listening and wants to employ uh, either Yost or myself, Doctor Underscore Obs, you can reach out to us, and we'll be sure to. No, help you no, 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 no. I'm happy with my retirement. 
<laughs> yes, yes. So, so one last question, and then we'll get on to that. We'll get on to what you've been up to, Yost. I'm, I'm interested to hear. So, um, last question is about Red Bull. So, you know, this year we've seen Red Bull again be, you know, a dominant force so far. So far, the, the year is still young, but the RB19 looks, you know, to be in a very competitive place where maybe set to shatter some of the records that the RB18 set. But they do have one big hurdle in the way. And that, you know, is back to the reference of the cost cap and the, you know, uh, the exceeding of the cost cap that they did, that they're operating now under reduced aero development limitation during the year. So in, in your opinion, how might this hurt them? Is, would this be something that would hurt them in 2023? Or is this something that's potentially going to hurt them for the 2024 car development? Um, it's, I wouldn't say hurting because I, I believe they are very efficient in using the wind tunnel. And, you know, if you say you have the wind tunnel time, it's, it depends how you use your wind tunnel time. If you have a, a huge infrastructure around it, the best technology and the best measurement methods and, and, and laser cameras and all that, you can use your wind tunnel much more efficient. Yeah. And if you can yeah. use it more efficient, you can do more tests in less time than others who don't have this efficient work and, and efficient opportunity for working, running the wind tunnels. So I think they will, they will be, uh, they will have an impact on their development speed, but not on their quality, I believe, mm -hmm. because they are yeah. using the wind tunnel so efficient um, and, uh, I think the gap will be maybe get a bit smaller, but will not disappear. Yeah, it's a it's a good point because something that uh, we've heard you know teams across the grid talking about is that you know efficiency of development, ensuring that the developments that you're bringing have gone through you know proper levels of CFD assessment and you know in the computational space before then going to the wind tunnel and then going to the track and actually something interesting that I've heard is that you know some teams you know with reduced wind tunnel time potentially might be using free practice time after they've gone through and they've developed something in CFD to, to run prototype parts in FP1 and to get real on track performance data and potentially even skip some of the wind tunnel time that uh, may be also another efficient way to, to gain data as well. It's, there is a huge efforts with all the teams to get the correlation between <clears throat> CFD, wind tunnel, simulator and track. Yeah. This, is, this is vital under the cost cap because if you have a good correlation and when you see in CFD it's improving and this finally really improves the car on track, then you are working very efficient. If you don't have this correlation, then you are not sure that you get the car that you believe improve a part that you believe improves the car when you put it on the car you can have the surprise that it's the other way around and Absolutely. that's why all the teams have to invest a lot and have to uh, work hard to get this correlation right it's so interesting that something like a correlation, I think maybe people that don't dig into the details, the technical side of aero development might not understand that everything that you do in computational space is 
based off of mathematical equations and relationships that utilize assumptions. And sometimes those assumptions aren't a hundred percent correlated with reality. And so finding that correlation through, you know, correlation factors and things like that is absolutely essential. And uh, what you're doing in the computational space may not always reflect reality. Unfortunately, as Mercedes found out through 2022, for most of it, you know, with their, you know, issues with correlation with the W13. Um, and even in their, you know, new updated Mercedes, with, where it seems like, uh, if anything, they've at least achieved a higher level potentially of correlation. That in itself is very powerful, as you mentioned, y'all. Yeah. So that's a really good point. So, yeah, Yosta, I, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. This has been a, a fascinating conversation, but I do want to get on to what you've been up to now since you've left Williams. You say you're you're retiring. What, how have you been spending your days? What, what are, things are you interested in? How, how are you getting on? Yeah, you know, first day is a lot of things that have not been done over the last decades that should have been done. You know, for example, all the personal files that have been moving with me for 30 years, now they have to be sorted out and throw some away and look what you have to keep and whatnot. And uh, I got approached by a couple of companies, uh, startups, they uh, asked me if I could support them. And it's not in racing, but it's quite interesting. One is an AI company from Australia. Another is a company who does... Um, last mile deli- autonomous last mile delivery vehicles um wow. it's quite this autonomous driving is quite interesting and quite uh, really interesting and uh, upcoming technology and also another company who is developing safety boxes for lithium ion batteries what is getting more and more issues on fires and we see like in in big cities you are not allowed to get your your battery of your e-scooter or your e-bike anymore in the apartment. Um, you have uh, more and more batteries on on yachts. And uh, if there is a fire on the yacht through the lithium-ion battery, it's very dangerous. So that's really a safety issue. And uh, it's very interesting to work with these kind of companies. And they're all small companies with less than 10 people, but very efficient, very high technology. And I really enjoy working with them and uh, focusing on engineering solutions. That's that's great to hear, Jost. I think once you're an engineer and you've worked at the level of technical, uh, you know, the height of innovation of Formula One, I think that's the thing that initially drew me myself into Formula One was the innovation, you know, in my personal career, I'm in technology development and to see the level of innovation and technology development there is in Formula One, it makes sense that you're spending your time as well in very innovative areas like AI, you know, battery, um, you know, securing batteries and battery boxes and things like that. So, that's fantastic to hear. Are you getting to spend any time doing any hobbies or anything as well? I think I've read that you're, and, and you did say that you're, you know, as a young child, you were into motorbike racing. Are you getting to do any of that lately? Um, yeah, I, I, I go on the motorbikes. So uh, I love to ride all kind of, of motorbikes and now I can go on longer trips. And that's what I'm preparing for to really enjoy the riding as long as I can. And, uh, and that's great. And I also get approached by companies who want want me as a keynote speaker and talking about building and maintaining high performance organizations. 
what is what is very nice as well and to to meet with people who are fascinated about how formula one and racing in general works and it's they're also interesting to see how that can impact um and what are the relations to other businesses and how other businesses can learn from the racing business in changing the culture and changing their approaches and uh, so it's it's really interesting and it's a quite a nice balance on engineering on uh, on management style management processes and so it's really really interesting and now uh, you can do most of it remote like we do the the podcast <laughs> that you can do from all over the world so you can combine or i can combine these activities with my, with traveling and riding the motorbike so it's 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 another perfect step for me in my career, I would say. Yeah, my the company that I work for actually went and spent some time with Red Bull to learn a bit more about how they do their process, you know, their processes for engineering, innovation and development. So you're, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of things that can be transferred over. And if someone wanted to get in touch with you, you know, about uh, speaking engagements and things like that, what's the best way that they can get in touch with you? Is it your LinkedIn page? Yeah, the best is over the LinkedIn page. If you look for my name, you'll find the LinkedIn page. And uh, and um, I, I look at the mails there I get and the messages I get. So that's the easiest. Great. Okay, Jost, I, I'm hoping that you get an opportunity on your motorbike to go on one of these glorious uh, countryside long trips that they take in Germany as living there for nearly four years. It is one of the most beautiful countries to drive through. And I hope you get an opportunity to do more of that. And I've really enjoyed my time with you, Jost. Thank you for being so open and you know answering our questions here today and, and for meeting with us. And it really was a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, thank you very much, Jacob. So it was really nice to talk to you as well. And you had really good questions that get a lot out of me because uh, uh, it's obvious that you have a passion about it, that you have the know-how and the knowledge about Formula One and about racing. So it's always nice to talk to people who understand what, what the racing industry is doing. And I'm sure the listeners will enjoy uh, this podcast. And uh, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to feedback as well. Thank you so much, Jost. And thank you, everyone, for listening to Georgie Strippin' the Dippin'. Make sure to follow, like, and subscribe for future episodes. Thank you, Jost. And everybody have a wonderful evening. I have a question to ask from uh, Jost. Oh, yeah. Go for it. <laughs> what do you think about pineapple on pizza? Yeah, your name. What? Sorry? Sorry? Pineapple, pineapple on pizza. Uh, ananas on pizza. I need to be in a very special mood to like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's but the I am there is two and a half percent Italian in me, Georgie. The rest is Greek and Turkish, and I tell you, the two and a half percent of me cringe when you talk about pineapple on pizza. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure Denzel and uh, Fon Black will be very happy to uh, hear you guys saying no for pineapple on pizza. <laughs> <laughs>